Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to Ion Travel with Peter Greenberg ad-free and right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. This episode is brought in part to you by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, The Coldest Case. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you can have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. Hi, everybody. Peter Greenberg here with another Ion Travel podcast. I'm sending all best holiday wishes your way with the most obvious wish of all, that 2020 can't end fast enough. Towards that end, my year-end conversations on the state of travel and the state of your travels with Gary Left, who writes the amazing View from the Wing column. Then with airline analyst Henry Hardevelt. And with Madhu Unakrishnan, who edits Airline Weekly for the folks at Skift. First up, Gary Leff. So much to talk about uh, as we end the year and uh, survive Christmas. So by the way, Merry Christmas plus one to all of you out there. And Merry Christmas plus one to my next guest, who writes the the most incredible column called ViewFromTheWing.com. Uh, he's basically a regular on the show because every time I open up his column, it's like wacky, crazy, but true stuff. Um, and also really helpful stuff to have, to help you navigate what is not only uncharted waters these days, but uncharted, I mean, uncharted everything. Gary Leff in Austin, Texas. Welcome. Thank you, Peter. Excited for the end of 2020 and a brand new 2021 coming up. Yes, 2020 cannot end fast enough for me, and all I can say is uh, being down in Punta Mita, Mexico is not a bad way to do it. Uh, But first and foremost, let's catch up on what we think is going to happen in 2021. I've seen airfares over the last two weeks. I mentioned this on the show last week. i got to mention it again. I saw an airfare in Miami to L.A. on a 777 on American Airlines, one way, $32. I saw an airfare from Fort Lauderdale to LaGuardia. Uh, one way for $18. That was on uh, Spirit. Um, I saw an airfare in Mexico. I'm in Mexico now. I saw an airfare from Mexico City to Guadalajara. I'm going to let you guess. Go ahead. What do you think? Oh, gosh. No, I mean, I I, I know what U.S. airfares are like, but 
ex uh, Mexico City. I'm not sure I could tell you. I'm sure it's cheap. Okay, whatever you're going to guess, I guarantee you it'll be too high. Try, just try. Twenty nine dollars. As I warned you, you're too high. Four dollars <laughs> and eighteen cents. Four dollars oh. and eighteen cents on Volaris. I am not making that up. So. We're seeing what? In the law of supply and demand, a whole lot of supply that's entering the new year, aren't we? Look, and in with the case of the largest U.S. airlines, uh, with the exception of basic economy tickets, in the, you know, even in the future, no change fees. And right now, uh, you know, no change fees because of the pandemic. So there's just not a whole lot of risk even in jumping on some of these uh, fares, even with the uncertainty in the world, right? We've got... You know, too many seats and not enough passengers. And that's going to stay this way for, for kind of a while because airlines have all these planes even sitting on the sidelines or not uh, flying as much as they could. When, and they'll start adding those back as passengers come back. So, you know, a lot of empty seats is good for cheap airfares. It's also good for people looking to use their miles. And then the other thing that's happening, which I never expected this would happen based on the behavior of the the Americans, the Uniteds, and the Deltas towards the end of this year, which we're almost at now, is that there are a lot of airlines out there that are basically saying, you know what, we got a lot of parked planes on the ground. Let's just go somewhere. Let's add routes. Let's just see what happens. Let's throw some darts up against the wall. Southwest Airlines announcing 12 new routes. Frontier Airlines announcing 19 new routes out of cities that they never flew to before, and in some cases, cities that they said they would never go to, like Miami. <laughs> And Chicago O'Hare and Houston Intercontinental. And Southwest is going to go, of all places, to Fresno, right? Um, you know, Southwest Airlines owned, uh, when they acquired Morris Air, they shut down Fresno, and that was 27 years ago. Uh, they, you know, they're looking for places to fly. They're looking for passengers. The last few years, Southwest couldn't grow because they didn't have the planes, and the MAX was grounded. They had planes taken out of their uh, system, uh, but now they're not operating with the same kind of frequency to major business destinations without business travelers, so they have excess aircraft time, places they can send around. They can get into an airport like Chicago O'Hare that's normally full because they're not seeing, O'Hare is not seeing the traffic it usually sees. So there's interesting opportunities for airlines to try new and different things and it's uh, in, in that way, look, I'd never wish uh, what we've all been through on anyone, but it's also an exciting time. It is an exciting time and a, and a true buyer's market, not just in terms of airfares, but in terms of frequent flyer miles. Uh, you know, the, the amount of capacity that's out there right now is, to me at least, somewhat staggering. But the airlines are going to be offering a lot of big bonuses to people to fly, trying to put people into those seats and trying to sway uh, people away from their competitors. And those miles are going to be easier to use for a while, too, because of all of these extra seats. Now, look, there is going to come a time when planes are full again, and this is all going to change. Right? They're going to be printing miles, and then all of a sudden there will be not enough seats for those miles. But we're looking at a golden age of frequent flyer travel for a period of time. I mean, call it uh, two years. I don't know exactly how long. Uh, we're, we're going to be richly rewarded for flying and also for uh, redeeming. Exactly. And by the way, for anybody, this is certainly an educational year. 
for anybody who follows this. And if, by the way, if you're really bored one day and you have nothing better to do, get the 10K reports from the Securities and Exchange Commission on all the publicly traded airline stocks and read what they report in there on their frequent flyer programs. It's staggering the amount of money that they have made from those programs up until 2020 and what they were actually worth and how they valued them. And then even more staggering how American United and Delta essentially mortgaged those frequent flyer programs to raise much needed capital in the wake of the pandemic. We're not talking like getting like a hundred thousand dollar loan here. We are in the billions and billions of dollars. I mean, that was an eye opener for people who ever asked the question, what are these frequent flyer programs worth, right, Gary? United mortgaged theirs for six and a half billion uh, raised in the private markets. Uh, American pledged theirs to the Department of the Treasury for uh, CARES Act subsidized loans for seven and a half billion. And Delta originally planned to go in for about six and a half billion. Uh, Their offering was oversubscribed, and Delta said, "Hey, wait, stop at nine billion." The Americans program, the Advantage program, was appraised at between eighteen and thirty billion. Uh, the Treasury Department's uh, requirements were that they uh, had to have at least uh, collateral worth double what they loaned out. Uh, and so the government believed it was worth more than $15 billion when they lent the uh, $7.5 billion, uh, against it when they approved that loan. Uh, and that's because it's big money. The programs continue to earn subst- you know, billions of dollars every year from their co-brand credit cards, from selling miles to other uh, partners as well. And people keep earning these miles on the credit cards, even during the pandemic, because we all see travel as something that we are going to do again. So, you know, if if that weren't the case, people would be shifting away from these cards. And there's been some modest reduction in spend on these portfolios, but it hasn't been huge. So they keep earning these miles and the programs keep bringing in that cash. Uh, And it's even in uh, the pre-pandemic times. American Airlines was basically either breaking even or losing money on actually flying passengers and cargo, moving planes around. And, you know, most of the time in previous quarters, their entire profit was accounted for by revenue generated by the Advantage program. Uh, you know, the other airlines were actually making a little bit of money flying. But, you know, it's, it's fundamentally, uh, you know, these are you know, marketing businesses that fly planes. It sounds almost counterintuitive that the airlines would make money on a frequent flyer program when they are ostensibly, quote unquote, giving away free tickets for their frequent flyers. But as you and I know, because we've run the numbers, the airlines make so much money from the credit card companies and the banks associated with and linked to those frequent flyer uh, accounts, whether it's Delta for American Express or Citibank for American or Chase for United, the numbers are completely out of control. Yeah, it used, this is the most successful marketing innovation in history. Almost any company in the world marketing is an expense line. For the airlines, it is a profit center because people have the romance of travel and they're able to effectively rent out their programs to other businesses at a substantial profit to, uh, you know, to deliver, to, to bundle that travel with what other uh, businesses are selling, mostly the banks. And, uh, you know, it, it's, really remarkable, uh, but it also is 
you know, quite thrilling. It, you know, it is a lucrative thing for the airlines because it's also good for customers. It used to be the case you'd see commentators saying, you know, gosh, if airlines had known what was going to happen with these programs and that everyone was going to match them, if they had the opportunity, they would never have started them in the first place. Well, clearly that isn't true. And speaking to Gary Left, the author of ViewFromTheWing.com, there's a reasonably good chance that in your wallet or in your purse, uh, you're carrying a card, a Visa card, a MasterCard, an American Express card uh, that's got some proposed perks. Uh, in fact, that's probably one of the reasons why you got the card. And along with that card comes, in some cases, a pretty hefty annual fee. If you want to get the Chase Preferred Visa, I think it's $550 a year. American Express is more, um, et cetera, et cetera. And what comes along with those cards in normal times can be access to airline lounges, can be rebates on baggage charges, can be all sorts of great money-back deals or credits that if you play the cards right, and Gary's one of those guys who does, uh, it's well worth the investment. Well, we're living in dysfunctional times now in which we're not flying as much, which means we're not using lounges as much. We're not checking bags as much, so we're not paying baggage fees as much, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So my question to the esteemed Mr. Leff is, uh, are the banks trying to figure out how to the retention issue here of how you keep your customers happy when the perks that got them to get the card in the first place either are not available or not being used? You know, several of the banks have been pretty aggressive in offering the kind of perks that are relevant to people uh, when they aren't traveling. So American Express has done things like giving uh, platinum card members credits to cover their streaming services and credits to cover their uh, cell phone bills. And you've seen uh, the ability to use the Chase Sapphire Reserve uh, travel credit on uh, groceries instead. Uh, you've seen the American Express Premium Marriott card uh, let you use the Marriott credit for restaurant spend. Uh, they've basically wanted to make sure that customers are getting the value they expected from the card because they, you know, customers, valuable customers are expensive to acquire for a card company. Once they have those customers, they don't want to lose them. I mean, the, the, the customers who are going to be their best customers in the future are likely the ones who have been their best customers in the past. So when that annual fee comes due, it's a decision point. And, you know, look, what you want to do is look at the value that you're getting and you compare it to the fee and you want to make sure that you're certain of that value and that it's greater than, not just equal to that fee. Uh, and at a time where you may not be lo- using uh, lounges or you may not be uh, traveling, uh, those travel benefits aren't, don't speak as loudly. And so the idea was let's bridge that gap. Uh, not every card company did that. Some of them have suffered because of it. And it's going to be expensive for them to reacquire customers. So we actually think that we're probably going to start seeing, and we have started to see, much bigger initial bonus offers to begin reacquiring customers. Banks went silent for a while. They weren't sure uh, what the economy was going to look like, what the job situation was going to be. It was very difficult to model. So who do you extend credit to, and how do you get people to take a travel card during the pandemic? So when that they started to come out of that, we've seen, big, you know, 75, 80, 100,000 mile sign-up offers from different cards, and in some cases even more, uh, because uh, they needed to make up for lost time. And look, the end of the year is coming, and they've got numbers to hit. They've got well, a report speak, to well, speaking of, these portfolios. Speaking, like. of, 
Speaking of numbers to hit, uh, I'm hearing stories that people are calling their their card companies and negotiating a much lower annual fee to retain them. It depends on the card issuer or the approach they take. Uh, you know, and some are only going to look and see whether some whether a card member was a good customer worth keeping or not. Uh, others are going to be more generous, and it may be that there's an offer to uh, get a statement credit equal to the fee based on using the card for spend, or it may be uh, incentivizing with miles to keep the card and spend on the card. But you know, look, if you're on the fence and you're really not sure whether a card makes sense. Have a conversation with your uh, bank issuer because they may have an offer to keep you. You know what? The famous rule, if you don't ask, you don't get. (laughs) Exactly. Well, you know, it's interesting because we're at a a sort of threshold moment here with mileage, with, uh, with cards, with vaccines, with therapeutics, with rapid response, widespread testing. It's all sort of converging and so my guess, and tell me what you think, Gary, is that this conversation we're having now may be completely moot by the end of February as travel comes, at least leisure travel, comes roaring back. You know, I don't know what the date is. I do think it's, I'm more optimistic than many. Um, look, this is a very, very difficult time right now with a lot of folks who have been uh, getting sick. Uh, but the number of people who have gotten sick and aren't really vulnerable to it for you know for a little bit for the most part, uh, plus the vaccines taken together may you know really rocket us to a place where you know things are under control and we feel comfortable traveling again. It's going to come back domestically first, and the vaccine is going to be much more available in the U.S. than in many parts of the world. Look, the first two that are going to be approved here, you know, the Pfizer already has been, and, and you know, and, and then the, right. the Moderna vaccine as well. I mean, these have to be stored at very cold temperatures, and that's not something that is going to be possible in all parts of the world. So we may be ahead of much of the world, and so we'll have exactly. to wait and see what travel restrictions look like internationally. My thanks to Gary. And whenever I want great context and perspective in the airline business, I turn to analyst Henry Hardevelt, who isn't shy about talking about the past, the present, and as we enter a new year, the future. And he's always been right. You know, as we recap the year, may I remind everybody that even pre-pandemic, December has never been a happy time for most airlines. It's the time of the year that they struggle in December and January and February to get to like April so that they can actually get solvent again. It's not a pleasant time financially for most airlines. In fact, historically, if you take a look at when airlines have gone bankrupt, in many cases, it's December. Eastern Airlines, 1989. And then again in 1991. Pan Am in 1991. Uh, and, and, uh, and then, of course, TWA in, in 2000. Uh, I'm joined by someone who knows a lot about airline history. Next to me, I don't not me, next to him, I should say, I'm sort of like the second biggest aviation geek. He's the number one aviation geek. Um, he's the president of the Atmosphere Research Group. But when he's not doing that, he's a bona fide airline historian. Henry Hart of Health, how are you, sir? Peter, thank you very much for that very nice compliment. Uh, I appreciate it. Well, it's true. You know, I read your posts all the time, and every time you post, you you attach a visual, and I'm always seeing pictures I never even knew existed of airports and terminals and planes. And I should also say, 
you probably have an unmatched collection of branded airline drinking glasses. Um, <laughs> you you yeah. do. And we're talking about airlines that are no longer with us, like Bonanza and, um, and of course, Piedmont and, uh, and some of the aforementioned airlines, Eastern and Pan Am and TWA, but some, e- some even wilder ones. And, uh, I've collected them too, but nowhere near your uh, your collection. So uh, hats off to you on that, or I should say, little umbrellas off to you on that too. <laughs> Bottoms up. Bottoms up. So let's talk historically about about this time of the year. Um, it's when Pan Am ran out of cash and Delta wouldn't really come to the rescue. Uh, Eastern went belly up. TWA wants a great airline. Uh, also said goodbye. What is it about December? Well, first, I worked early in my career uh, at TWA, and so uh, when when that one shut down, that that really hurt. Uh, December is a really tough month for airlines. Uh, not a lot of cash comes across the threshold uh, in in December. Business travel back when these airlines shut down, business travel would generally wind down by Thanksgiving, and that left them with the Thanksgiving weekend which is mostly leisure travel, and then not a lot of business uh, coming until January or February when the business travelers began to return. But all of these airlines were different, Peter. In the case of Eastern, there had been a very long, protracted labor strike at the airline. They were owned by Texas Air Corporation, run at the Frank time. Lorenzo. Frank, Frank Lorenzo. Frank Lorenzo. Right. And I was working at Continental, Eastern's sister airline, when Eastern uh, uh uh, shut down, and that was a really sad day. Um, but that was a function of Texas Air and Eastern essentially uh, at, at war with the labor, uh, and and uh, uh, you know the money ran out, and so Eastern shut down. Pan Am, as you noted, shut down December fourth, nineteen ninety one, and uh, that was due to the fact that Pan Am had exhausted its cash for the most part, and they had thought they had a deal with Delta to rescue the airline. Uh, Pan Am was essentially going to run flights just to South America, uh, and Delta was going to take over the rest of the airline. Delta decided not to go through with that uh, agreement, and that left Pan Am high and dry. TWA's shutdown, which occurred December 1st, 2001, was planned. Uh, uh, TWA went into a prepackaged bankruptcy in 2000. It was acquired, or its assets, I should say, was were acquired by American Airlines. So the TWA date was, was chosen intentionally. In some cases, Peter, I would say that perhaps the airline's finance uh, teams were saying to them, let's file in December because it makes it easier to end it, it this calendar year versus trying to make it into another year. But, you know, these airlines have teams of lawyers and, and accountants advising them in these situations. You know, but I have December a funny... St- I have a, dark, yeah, it is a dark I month. I have, say, I, I, it's a dark month, and it's a dark month for airlines. And, you know, it's it's just it's a shame that we lost three of Americans pioneer, America's pioneering airlines uh, all in December. Yeah, and a, an interesting Eastern Airlines story, because they first filed for bankruptcy in 89, and they kind of limped along. They sold their popular Northeast shuttle... Do you know who? Donald oh, I Trump. I was there. Donald Trump. I worked. I, I was the marketing director there, Peter. You forget that. <laughs> uh, and then 
Eastern sort of limped along until it finally stopped flying in 1991. But I have a great story for you that I don't, I don't think you know. Um, you know, when an airline shuts down, there's an old Ernest Hemingway story about a guy comes to him and says, Ernest, I have, I have terrible news. I lost all my money. I'm bankrupt. I have nowhere to go. And Hemingway says to him, well, how'd that happen? He said, well, slowly and then suddenly. Well, in this situation, when the airline finally pulls the plug, they do it relatively sudden. And that means sometimes they even have planes in the air flying passengers. And on the day in 1991, the last Eastern Airlines flight was headed to Miami. It was an L-1011 coming from Bogota. And it landed in Miami. Passengers got off. At that point, everybody knew this was the end for Eastern. It was over. And the plane was towed over to the Eastern Airlines hangar in Miami, where it literally sat as the conservators and everybody else tried to figure out what to do with the assets of the airline for over two years. And in either 1993 or 1994, uh, the folks at Delta Airlines, which also flew the L-1011, said, you know what? We think we can get this plane that's in this hangar in Miami that hasn't flown in three or four years. Uh, We can buy it dirt cheap, get a volunteer crew to fly it to Atlanta where we have our maintenance base, strip it, do all the maintenance work, paint it in in Delta colors, and, and get it up and flying at very little cost. So they went to the guy who was managing the bankruptcy. They bought it. They sent a volunteer crew down there. All they did was they put enough fuel in it to get it to Atlanta. They started up the engines, and they smoked like you couldn't believe. They kicked the tires and realized they had to replace the tires. They changed the hydraulic fluids for the brakes and the flaps and the ailerons. And then, just with the crew on board, no weight, no cargo, no nothing, this volunteer crew got this thing in the air and flew it to Atlanta. Here comes the funny part. They get to Atlanta. They taxi it into a hangar. Remember, this is a plane that had flown from Bogota, Colombia to Miami in 1991. It's now like 1994 or 1995. plane has not seen daylight in four years. They taxi it into a hangar in Atlanta. The, the Delta Airlines maintenance guys come in. They start taking off panels, and they get hit with bail after bail after bail of cocaine. I remember hearing about this. And... Can you imagine the cocaine smuggler thinking he's just hit the home run, he's got everything coming in, and the airline fails, <laughs> and the plane gets, and the plane gets towed to a hangar, it sits there for four years, and then four years later, some Delta maintenance guy un, you know, unscrews a panel, and every cocaine bow, it's, oh my god, and and the end of the story is that uh, Delta literally for very little money got this plane up and running. And it was in profit in the first 30 days. Uh, yeah. They paid for the plane in 30 days. Uh, well, but there's your, that's your Eastern Airlines story. That's, that, yeah, well, look, when Braniff Airways, when Braniff International went bankrupt in 1982, I think American was one of several airlines that acquired uh, some of Braniff's 727s uh, uh, and um, uh, even Crosstown Rivals Southwest, I think, operated one for a short time. So now, the, the biggest you know, irony, though? The yeah. biggest irony is that when Eastern failed in 91, it ended a 62-year reign for that airline. And the day they failed, they were burning through. They were bleeding 
2.5 million dollars a day in cash. Now let's go, let's let's catch up till today. American United and Delta in the wake of COVID-19, their cash burn every day, each airline is between 18 and 20 million a day. Crazy, right? We're talking to Henry Hardevelt from Atmosphere Group. Henry, we're in a new year and the best thing we can say about it is it's not 2020. Um and I like to think things are going to start to turn around slowly. Uh, one story that that sort of died away a little bit last year because of the of COVID nineteen, but it's now very much back in the news, is of course the seven thirty seven Max, which you know late in twenty twenty was certified as airworthy by the FAA. Other foreign regulatory agencies are probably going to follow suit. Uh, we've seen one plane go in the air in in uh, in Brazil. Uh, we're about to see another one in three days. Uh, I'll be on it. It'll be the first U.S. airline to fly the 737 MAX after the grounding, and that'll be an American Airlines flight from LaGuardia to Miami. But when we're talking about the 737 MAX, we're still talking about a huge amount of reputational damage. Yes, we are, Peter. Look, uh, uh, you know, the the two accidents that killed 346 people uh, are bad enough, but the 737 MAX was grounded for 20 months. Uh, We did research on this in uh, 2019. And at the time we did the research in May of of 2019, we found that only 14% of the 2,000 U.S. airline passengers we surveyed said they would fly the MAX when it returned to the skies within six months of its return to service. Uh, Just about 20% said that they would fly it within a year. The best thing for the MAX, frankly, is the fact that not only has it been grounded for so long and that so much work has been done to fix all the problems, but that they had a nine-month or so cover, if you will, from COVID, that COVID kept uh, people from traveling. And so by the time people are ready to return to the skies later uh, in 2021, I believe the 737 MAX will have proven itself as reliable and safe. And frankly, by then, uh, uh, it may be viewed as just another airplane by a lot of passengers. So I think a lot of the concern that we are discussing now may go away by the middle of this year. You know, you may be right. Um, Now, I'm getting on the plane for another reason, not because I want to be first on my block. I'm actually going on it to report on the situation, but because I have to think that under the close scrutiny of Congress, the press, a number of very significant legal cases, many of which are still proceeding, uh, Boeing had no choice but to fix this plane to fix the software, the flight management system, uh, to properly train pilots, not with iPads, but in real simulators. Um, And not in terms of just how to operate the flight management system, but to how to override it. And I take my cue from the the pilots. If the pilots tell me they're going to fly the plane, then count me in. I'm going to be on the plane. And that's what the pilots are telling me now. They're telling me they're going to fly the plane, so I'll be on it. However, having said that, the story's not over. The story that's going to rear its ugly head for at least two to three years to come, because a lot of those civil cases are still proceeding, may be some criminal cases about the behavior of some officials at Boeing, perhaps even some officials at the FAA, in terms of a questionable relationship that the regulator had with the very company it was supposed to regulate. Not just with the Boeing 737, but dating back 40 years to even the DC-10 and how the FAA sees its role in enacting and enforcing aviation safety. Well, that's a very valid point, Peter. Now, I'm not a lawyer. I'm not going to talk about legal things. But 
the point that you make about the role and relationship that the FAA has had in the past with aircraft manufacturers is certainly something that has to be examined. And it will be very interesting to see uh, uh, what and how the Biden administration will choose to act in terms of funding the FAA. Will they allow the FAA to hire more inspectors so that the FAA can uh, have the independence it really deserves and needs to have uh, so that it is less reliant on the manufacturers to do some of the work that the FAA should objectively be doing itself? Yep, you're right. You know, it's interesting. If I told you I built a chair, Henry, please do not sit in that chair uh, because it'll collapse. Uh, so the, the the way that manufacturers have been allowed over decades to hire what they call designated inspectors, people who are on the manufacturer's payroll to then certify the plane is safe and act as if they are FAA inspectors. This is crazy. This has been going it's, on it's for 40 years. Right. It's the equivalent of the Fox, uh, you know, keeping charge over the chicken coop. And, exactly. and it's it's not the, the best it's not the best way to do it. It's not the right way to do it. Uh, but again, in fairness, the FAA has said we can only hire so many people. Our hands are, are not tied, but they're limited in what we we're limited in what we can do. So they've had to rely on the aircraft manufacturers. Uh, I hope that we will be able to find funding so the FAA can hire yeah. more of their own inspectors, more of their own uh, uh, professionals in other roles to work with the aircraft manufacturers, uh, but to, to do so in the objective and critical way that they need to, to ensure mistakes don't happen. Well, um, the good, and, news, the uh, good news, Henry, yeah. is that under a congressional rule right now, about 450 of the planes at Boeing finished building will not be allowed to be inspected by Boeing, but they'll only be certified by the FAA. So fingers crossed, we have learned lessons from this and we'll also apply them. My thanks to Henry. Each week there's an amazing publication that lands in my electronic inbox. It's called Airline Weekly, produced by the folks at Skift. And the editor, Madhu Unakrishnan, always has the facts and figures. In a year in which we've already lost 34 airlines, it's not about crunching the numbers. It may be about how the numbers are crunching us. It's one of those things where as you spend more and more time watching the airline business, you realize how much you don't know, and everything you think is going to happen doesn't, and everything you don't think is going to happen does. And who's on top of that? Our friend is the editor at Airline Weekly, of course, published by Skift, Madhu Unakrishnan. How are you, sir? Thanks for having me, Peter. I'm glad to be on. Yeah, you know, if I, if I was just totaling up the numbers, it's one been it's been one depressing year, right? We've had at least 34 airlines that have been liquidated. We have many more that are hanging in the balance, and we and you track this every day. You still have you know hundreds and hundreds of planes parked. Uh, some might even call them retired. Um, and yet, at the same time, there are other airlines out there that are looking at this as an opportunity. And it never ceases to amaze me that as one airline says, okay, we're no longer serving London, or we're dropping Springfield, Illinois, or we're, we're no longer going to fly to, uh, you know, to Hartford, Connecticut, or to New Haven, Connecticut, all of a sudden someone shows up and says, I'll do it. Uh, so I guess the first question I'm going to ask you is, as bleak as losing 34 airlines sounds, uh, how bleak really is it? It's bleak. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> you know, let's just back up for a second. When you think of 
the way airlines started this year, 2020, they were on track to make records, record-setting profit all over the world. I mean, airlines were sitting really pretty. And then the pandemic happened. And then no, we've seen nothing like this, nothing as catastrophic in the entire century of commercial aviation. And, you know, it's great. There, there's, there's signs of hope, right? There, there's a vaccine. The vaccines that are being deployed around the world, two in the U.S. soon, um, several others in uh, other parts of the world. And that offers some hope. But until enough people are vaccinated for people, for travelers to feel comfortable getting on an airline again, you know, we're talking eight to ten months, it's going to remain bleak. So, um, you know, I, I hear, I see the press releases you do, you know, like a lot of hope on the, on the part of airlines, but I can't help thinking that's misplaced. Oh no, you're not going to, you're not going to, you know, recoup all that. You can't recoup the revenue. And, uh, in many cases, you're not going to recoup the uh, the market. But what I find really interesting is, take a look at Southwest Airlines. Here's an airline yeah. that in a given year, and this goes over a number of years, in a given year, they might, emphasis on the word might, add one new route. A pretty big deal for them, right? Uh, they're a big airline. They've got over 750 planes, if not more, um, all flying the same type of planes, right? They're all Boeing 737, different models, of course. And... Here you have American, United, and Delta essentially saying, we're going to dump a lot of routes. And all of a sudden, in one two-week span, Southwest Airlines announces 12 new routes. It's like, where'd that come from? Right? And, and, well, uh, and we're talking places like Palm Springs and Santa Barbara, and then going into hubs that they said they'd never fly into, like Miami uh, and, and Chicago O'Hare. Oh, my God. <laughs> Well, you know, what's happening, it's, it's really interesting. And it's not just Southwest. I mean, you look at JetBlue, you look at Frontier, you could even United, uh, adding routes, for example, from, from non-hub cities like Boston to Florida. And, and the through line through all of these new route announcements is leisure travel. Business travel, I mean, all airlines acknowledge business travel is, gone, is more or less gone. Companies are just not sending their, their road warriors back out on the road. But there's a little bit of traction with small and medium-sized businesses, but where the real action is and where they see growth coming in the next 6, 9, 12 months is, um, is with leisure travelers, people going to visit their families, people going to you know, take that vacation, escape the snow of Minnesota and go down to Florida. And that's what you're seeing Southwest and other airlines doing. It's not so much they're adding a whole bunch of routes. You know, they're taking them away from some more business-heavy markets and putting them in, in what they call this the snow and um, the ski and beach destinations, the sun and ski destinations. So and that, by the way, it's really yeah. And it's not yeah. just Southwest. You mentioned Frontier. The last count I had, I may be down by a few, but the last count I had was Frontier announcing 19 new routes. Like, wow, that never happens. Right. Yeah, they're all chasing that uh, that leisure traveler. They're all chasing the same same people, and they're taking them. They're flying them to where they want to go, which is. They want to go skiing now, or they want to go to, go to the beach. Now, having said that, I did a little fare search the other day, and, and Madhu, I'm not making this up. I, I priced an American Airlines flight on a 777 from Miami to Los Angeles. You want to tell me the, what the fare was? Oh, uh, you put me on the spot there, Peter, but I, let's guess something insane, like $89. You know what? You're not going to the Showcase Showdown. You're over. It was 32. 
Wow. It was $32. <laughs> but wait, it gets better. How about Fort Lauderdale to LaGuardia? I'm going to go with $29. You're still over. <laughs> <laughs> it was wow. 18 on Spirit. I mean, huh. and I'll give you one more. This is the killer. And by the way, I encourage anybody to go online and look it up. I can't make this up. Uh, in Mexico, from Mexico City to Guadalajara. Take a wild guess. All right. You've got me. I'm going to say $7. You know what? You just struck out. You're still over. It was $4.18 on Volaris. Wow. Now, I did fail math in high school. I know. I, I admit this, but I can do some basic addition and subtraction. How does anybody operate a flight at $18 from Fort Lauderdale to LaGuardia? They don't. I mean, they're not making money. That's just the bottom line. They're, they're not making money up. They have to those planes here they have to they're flying you know they're flying they have to keep the planes where they need to be for the next flight so so or or i'll, or I'll give you a suggestion or i'll give you a suggestion they're flying the planes because they're now making more money on cargo that's true for some airlines i mean especially you know the partner carriers like delta american united they're making a lot of money on um amazing I mean, to me, right now, you know, at, at a very tough time for us, we have all the spiking cases. We're in lockdowns or near lockdowns in California, New York, um, and so many other locations. We're looking at airfares that that normally would stimulate traffic. Uh, people would say, "I right. gotta go." Right? The cab ride to the right. airport's more expensive, and yet, and yet they're not. However, in Mexico, uh, which is doing great, by the way. It's open for American travelers, um, and the airfares to Mexico from the U.S. are going up. The airfares within Mexico are matching the bus fares in Mexico. It's just amazing. And the real question right. that I've got uh, that I don't know if either of us has the answer for is, will those fares stay that depressed through the first quarter? My guess is they will. They, they will? Did you say they will or they won't? My guess is they will. I, I agree with you. I think they will. I think, you know, you're already looking at the first quarter. Uh, airlines are sort of revising down or their forecast for demands. I think you'll see fares continue to stay really, really low. So it's a buyer's but, market. Know, you know, it, little, what was that? Just, just I've got a little anecdote for you that I that speak from the crowd. But something that you've well, look the, the the real bottom the, the real bottom line here is you know mm -hmm. it's not just the law of supply and demand, it's fear, it's the economy, it's people's ability to spend any kind of money on what might be you know discretionary travel, uh, business travel as you and I both know is essentially dead on arrival for the next year, uh, meetings and conventions probably for the next eighteen months to two years because that's how they book them, uh, but the real you know the real leader is going to be for the foreseeable future leisure travel. And so if people are going to stay home this Christmas, which many of us should because of the situation, and we want to travel responsibly in the next year, now's the time to roll the dice, especially when airlines have gotten rid of their ticket change fees and book away at low prices or redeem your frequent flyer miles. Either way, it's a win-win situation if you are operating on the same hope that I am not, not just for vaccines, but also for widespread reliable testing 
that will bring back a lot of confidence. My thanks to Madhu, to Henry Hardevelt, and to Gary Leff. And my thanks to you for listening to this Ion Travel podcast. And for more interviews with the world's leaders in travel, as well as answers to your travel questions, rate or review this podcast wherever you happen to listen to podcasts. And for all the breaking travel news, and there's a lot of it, just log on to petergreenberg.com. If you like Ion Travel with Peter Greenberg, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at Wondery.com survey. Are you ready for an all-new season of Survivor? You better be because Survivor 46 is here and it's 90 minutes of twists and turns you don't want to miss. Better yet, after each episode, there's a brand new episode of On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast. Each week, we go behind the scenes of the episode's biggest moments, taking you into the how and the why things happened. And this season, we're very lucky to be joined by an expert, the winner of Survivor 45, D. Valladares. What is up? I'm thrilled to be joining this team and to be giving you my take on how and the why players made the moves they did, what it takes to outwit, outplay, and outlast, and to ask Jeff some questions because even after 26 days out there, there is still a lot for me to uncover. Bring it, D. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcast. The Hargan women seem to have it all. From the outside looking in, we were blessed. My mom was amazing. But as detectives would soon learn, there was a lot going on inside the Hargan household. Ashley and I have been calling my mom and the house and Helen. No one's answering. 63-year-old Pamela Hargan gunned down in her own home. Her youngest daughter, Helen, lay dead upstairs. Patrol, when they arrived, assumed or thought that there might have been a murder-suicide. But for the detectives on the scene... There were things about the scene itself that were concerning to us on day one. Who would want to kill their mother and their little sister? There is no boogeyman here. It is exactly who we think it is. I'm Peter Vance Sat from 48 Hours. This is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings, starting May 8th, wherever you get your podcasts.